Hey there, you're listening to Paradigm Shift, a podcast about people building the future and pivotal moments in their journey. I'm Ashish, and I'm joined by my co-host, Zane. And today, we're super excited to speak with Brian Pellegrino. Brian is the founder of Layer Zero Labs, which is an omnichain interoperability protocol that unites decentralized applications across blockchains. Since being founded in 2021, the company has been on a tear and has raised over $140 million from top-tier investors, including Sequoia, A16Z, Tiger, Coinbase, and many more. We're super excited to have Brian on today. Welcome, Brian. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. So we thought we'd cover three themes today. First is your story into crypto and the founding story behind Layer Zero Labs. The second is your approach to infrastructure and some of the trade-offs you've had to make in designing the system. And last is your thoughts on the opportunity space for dApps and cross-chain dApps in particular. So why don't we start with the first one, which is you've been active in crypto for over five years now. Can you tell us about how Layer Zero Labs came together and the founding story? Sure. So I got into crypto first in 2013, so like almost a decade ago, but it was me and my brother-in-law mining in my brother-in-law's garage and just like pure Bitcoin mining and the expansion there. And then everything died in 2015-ish. Interest broadly dissipated. It was a much different environment, market back then. And everyone went their own ways. And then in 2016, Ethereum was launching and like, it was certainly a really interesting again on the smart contract side. And so 2016 happened, 2017 happened, and Ryan and Caleb and I are my other two co-founders. We've known each other since college. We built our first company together. We did all this stuff together. I pulled them out here to Vancouver and said, listen, like, we've got to do something. So we actually spent our first year in Vancouver doing independent research, like totally orthogonal, just working in AI, our past work, published that with Facebook AI research. I had been super involved in crypto since like end of 2016. My prior company I'd started with Dan Chen, who was first engineer at Andreessen, a couple other guys and had gone acquired. And so now it was, okay, what are we going to do? At first, we got contacted by IDEX had just launched, was like the first on-chain DEXs. And we had some hedge funds reach out and say, hey, they want us to help them write trading bots, basically, for these exchanges on-chain. So everyone in the smart contract side of things. And then eventually that wrapped up. And we are really interested into just the actual on-chain trading and what that looked like. Ryan had spent, his background was like 1588 precision timing at, at the sub-nanosecond level, like at the lowest levels, like HFT style, where he invented this thing that ended up being rolled out in Cisco routers all over the world, kind of like really changed high-frequency trading at like the hardware level. But his background was like pure speed and optimization, which was what we what were our strengths in the AI side of things as well. And so we started playing around with just ARB and Triangle ARB on-chain, like very simple opportunities, but it was like whoever was the fastest one. And it was dominated by like Google search results were just like the fastest bot in the world made like 80% of the profits and number two and three would break evenish or do okay. But everybody else would just get totally murdered in terms of paying gas. And we're in that two to three range and we're doing some really creative things in how to improve this, like how to get faster. So we're stripping apart gift and rewriting kind of with custom node discoveries, just propagating. How do we get messages to propagate as, as fast as humanly possible to get the fastest like block insertion times? And so we started seeing, and it was lucky we were still like paying attention to that stuff at this time as blocks happen. We just started seeing things that we were losing. And we'd look in the block and you'd have transactions with perfect block positioning with zero gas paid. And we're just like, oh, like the miners are colluding against us. This isn't a game we can play anymore. We like can't win. And then later came along flashbots and like commoditized this entire process. But this was all like pre that. And so it was about that time that 
we started getting inundated with messages constantly. Binance Smart Chain, more users than Ethereum, more volume than Ethereum. It was like the first time anything remotely interesting had happened on any other chain. Like chains existed, but nobody really used them. And so we're like, okay, let's play around with this. Let's see what it's like. We actually started, we're technologists at heart. We just built a toy game. That was the first thing. We built a gladiator game, actually, where like you would fight on Binance Smart Chain. And then if you won a certain amount of matches, you'd get freed from the arena and you'd mint an NFT on Ethereum. So it was like very simple concept. We started designing this and realized very quickly, oh, hey, in order to like do anything interesting in terms of like interaction between these chains, you need like a central controller that just sits outside and just updates these contracts or triggers events on these contracts. We're like, that's just fully centralized. So it's not really a cool solution. But we're like, all right, bridges exist. So surely somebody solved this. Like, Surely there's a way to do this. And we looked into the state of bridges that existed at the time. And we're just like horrified. There's no way we put millions, let alone like billions behind this. So we actually started writing a pure value transfer bridge. In the beginning, it was actually the predecessor to Stargate, but it was just pure pairwise transfer. And then very quickly realized we were just reinventing the transport layer below this in order to do this thing. So that was clearly like the generalizable solution. And that's when we really put all of our effort into what became layer zero is how do you make like the ideal transport layer for all of this stuff ongoing? And again, our, our background's going, whew, we're getting old, man. Like 15 plus years ago at this point, all three of us met actually working like an IEEE testing and conformance lab for like early internet technologies. So like we, we came from that sort of lens of background of like how do things get built and used and standardized like at scale. There's so much interesting stuff there. We'd love to maybe just pick a couple of those things and break them apart and break them down to something much simpler for ourselves and also the listeners. And I think a place to start is you mentioned the HFT trading strategies. I remember that moment. This must have been like 2017, 2018. I had friends who were like, just like making a killing doing trading. And I could never figure out what the hell they were doing. And they wouldn't tell me because that was the secret sauce, kind of. But now that we're past that, what were some of these ARB strategies? And can you maybe just explain to us exactly what you were doing at that time? And then how speed manifested as like the key thing to make money? Yeah, so basically it started in the beginning, actually when 2017, 2018 was like the ICO craze, right? So that's why when we were the most active, but that's where it started, where people were really paying attention because... Before any of this moved to like actually sales happening on CoinList or like more structured platforms, there's just like a smart contract that people would throw money at. And like the first people to get the money in would get the tokens out, right? And then excess mm -hmm. demand would drive the price up and, and things were insane. If you were one of the lucky ones who got into these contracts early, you could have five or 10 or 50x multiples like in a very short period, right? So that's when bots and a lot of the on-chain stuff really started to get fairly competitive. And it was just like, we have this mempool and the mempool is like sitting with transactions and it's just a gas queue. So whoever is paying the most gas is going to get accepted by the miners and put in. So you can view the mempool and then you need to propagate your transaction and insert it in the mempool. And so you would like, maybe you're here in gas in the structure, but then a bunch of other people pile in here. And now you need to like update. You always want to be on the top. Like you need to get into the block. And so like when people are trying to scoop these things, they're just like paying the most gas and taking as much of it. Sometimes, you know, it's capped, so you can only do 0.5 ETH per transaction. So you have to do this for a thousand, a thousand addresses. We're all like spamming this in. And so that's really, that's where this started. And then you started to get DeFi, right? On-chain DEXs. So now swaps were happening and things, real finance was happening on-chain. And just like normal markets with arbitrage, like you would have three different DEXs. 
and each pair has a rate and somebody would just swap on this pair. So maybe it's going to disjoint the price. It's going to make that price more expensive in this pool. And so there's a couple of things you can do. We have slippage tolerance. So some people would try to like sandwich attack that to take the slippage. And then other people would basically ARB saying, okay, this price is disjointed compared to these. So we want to sell here and buy here until they become balanced. And it's just free profit effectively, right? Your inventory stays the same. You, you made the spread. Is this a fair way to maybe explain it, which is like you would monitor on-chain activity to see where the demand is strongest or what ICOs you thought were likely to be the most in demand. And then you would try to like, to some extent, like front run the market and be the first to grab a bunch of it and do whatever you needed to grab the demand early for an ICO token scenario. We weren't active during like the ICO mania, right? We came later, but that's what started people really paying. That was the first time where people like, needed to be fast on chain and like needed to front run everybody else where you had to get into these sales or you just wouldn't get any of the token. You wouldn't be able to participate. And then after that, as DeFi came out, that's when we really came in and it was more of the arbitrage between markets and more like traditional products, just strictly on chain. And so there's the arbitrage to get the best price today, but then you also need to be able to like, you're basically like buying into the momentum, right? You got to know that you're going to be able to sell at a higher price, right? So how would you figure out? No, so on, on ARB, you don't actually need to. Between centralized exchanges, yes, you need to have standing inventory. But let's say there's a pair here. This one's lower, this one's higher, right? You can buy here and sell there, like in the same okay. transaction, right? Yeah. Got it. And so what were some strategies to be faster? And then like, I just like when you were like building bots and like, hacking it together, what were some things that were? Yeah. Yeah. So you start very simple. You start just like, okay, spot an opportunity. So that's the first thing. Monitor the mempool and figure out what's happening. And then, okay, you've identified an opportunity. And then it's, okay, now we're going to submit our transaction. But you submit your transaction and somebody else comes in. And then you need to update your transaction. It's basically just this race of insertions and figure out where that transaction lies in terms of gas until you hit like a, a threshold where it wouldn't make sense anymore. And then maybe you would cancel your transaction, right? And so everybody's trying to capture the maximum in like timing. And so if you get in the wrong timing, if somebody has gotten in in front of you, then you basically are either wasting gas or even worse cases, sometimes like becoming more of an opportunity for somebody else, which is even like worse. So normally you're just wasting gas, but you burn a lot, especially at a lot of these times, gas prices were like extremely high. So getting in a transaction that bounces, uh, you're just like lighting money on fire, right? But eventually you would get like a great arm and you'd make a bunch of profit, right? So you're failing often, but like winning reasonably big in, in certain scenarios. And so then it becomes, how do you do this? And it becomes like, okay, part of it is like where your servers are located and like sending in transactions from multiple locations. Part of it was, again, we were making our own system for a node discovery and, and packet propagation. So they're all normal. And Ryan is like way better at this than I am personally, more high level architectural. But a lot of this is just, yeah, you, again, it's all pure speed and all of this comes down to networking, right? So it's just, there's this graph of nodes that are, right? The Ethereum nodes that you're trying to propagate, propagate messages into. It's just about getting in before anybody else, right? So a lot of it is geography. Like latency is just like a fixed thing based on distance but then there's a bunch of others that you can do like in terms of where you think common clusters are and how you can get closer to them and making sure the right servers and locations are parked in the right ways etc but again he's far better at this than i am brian how did this work from a business perspective you mentioned you were working with some hedge funds were you like initially doing this on your own balance sheet and then you partnered with other people? Yeah, the hedge funds were just purely consulting, right? It was like people we knew who yeah. knew that we were 
good at writing code and had built complex systems. And like, we were closer to writing smart contracts than most people were. And they just had no yeah, idea how to do that. Enough. And so they said, this is what we want to do. And we said, oh, I've never done that before. Sure, let's build it. It seems like it would be fun. So it was very laid back. And again, people we knew quite well. And so this is around when like decentralized exchanges started showing up and you guys had the realization that the coordination was like a huge bottleneck and adding to higher gas fees and like limiting utility and the sort of like breadth of functionality of the system. And so your solution was layer zero, which provides like a decentralized coordination layer. So maybe it's a good segue into like, what some use cases are that layer zero like enables and like how you honed in on that solution. And it doesn't sound like a simple solution, right? So how did you guys figure out what to build and start to like hone in on the right direction? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing was we became increasingly convinced, and this was back when it was not a super popular opinion, but increasingly convinced that there were going to be this proliferation of chains. Gas fees were getting completely untenable. Uh, it was clear that some of these other chains, like BSC at the time, were like getting product market fit with users and like, had this reasonable pathway to having that. And then you were starting to see application-specific chains. I've been talked about for a long time, but like Axie Ronin and some of these others, right? So these things were starting to happen. And we just realized that if it was going to look anything like current DeFi, look like a lot of what's amazing about all of this, right? Go back 2013, everybody was like very libertarian mindset. It was like the cypherpunk ethos. Everything was pushing for like trustlessness and decentralization. And some of the great things about a bunch of the best protocols on Ethereum were like Uniswap, et cetera, right? You don't need to trust the protocol. It's a construct. It's a series of smart contracts. You just do it. And yet we would have these bridges that were completely centralized between. So any way that you would want to move assets between, you had to give over basically complete custodial risk to like the service provider. Same thing, if you had a Uniswap on two chains and you wanted to do like a simple swap, that's probably the most natural thing you can do between chains. I want to swap my Ethereum to Matic or my Matic to AVAX or Sol or whatever it is, right? Even to be able to do that between DEXs that exist, there was no, you always had to give over. So we said, if this stuff is going to exist, there has to be this pathway for basic communication to happen. Just like the internet, just like everything else, right? This has to exist. And then it came into, we're both like, I played poker professionally for eight years. My mind just works very adversarially in general. If you give me a system, like my first thought is how can I break it? And so me and Ryan, like the first four months of layer zero were the two of us in a room, just like arguing, like just yelling at each other about architecture trade-offs and like, just try to break it over and over again. What would this system look like? How can you make it so that the two main things you want is if layer zero labs disappears off the face of the earth, if our office, whatever happened, we're gone, the protocol should still exist. It should not be reliant on us at all. And the other thing is that if we wanted to be maximally adversarial, if our only purpose in life was to be malicious, that no application is forced to opt into that, we cannot inflict negative harm on anybody. And so those were like the two things in building any system right this when you're talking about how you make it so it has this component that it can be trustless, that applications can define their own state. And then everything came onto, okay, and like, how do you actually build something that's useful? Like it is miserable to swap. If you saw the demo we released way back now, almost a year ago, it was that first thing, right? The average experience to simply swap here, move the money and swap over there was like 50 clicks and took 10 to 20 minutes to do. And so you're talking about consumers, you need to click 50 plus unique times, have Ethereum and have, let's say, Sol or whatever it is switch their wallets and have get the gas over there and keep doing this. And so the whole point was, okay, we need to make this construct where like 
Users should think the next five years. Will things look like this? Absolutely not. Everybody's super. I don't care. I'm used to that experience. But like your average person is just not going to bear that. So you have to think like you want a wallet experience where a wallet can look at things on 10 different chains and not even need to care about the underlying chain. How do you provide that level of like agnosticism or allow the developer to give that to their users above. And that's when we came on when gas abstraction and all the other cool things that sort of layer zero does on top. I remember wanting to buy some Anchor a while back and some Solana too. And I don't think I could figure out a way to just transfer my ETH or convert my ETH. It was like multiple steps and all of this stuff. And so that's the problem you solved. With layer zero, I could just go to adapt and plug in my wallet. And like in one click, I could convert my Ethereum to any other token, as long as the chain was integrated with layer zero or worked with layer zero. Is that correct? 100%. So SushiSwap integrated layer zero and does exactly that now. So layer zero, again, what layer zero really is at its core sense, it's arbitrary contract invocation with a bytes array. So if you think about what a packet is on the internet, you're just sending some bytes, some piece of information from like computer computation to computer computation. That's it. Very simple, primitive. And then what you build in the packet is everything. That's us talking now. It's like every application we use, you can build like anything, right? So layer zero is that primitive of state share, of moving state information between chains. And then all this stuff we're talking about, that's applications on top. And so the use case you're describing, exactly that is built by SushiSwap today, is live today. A bunch of other people implementing similar things. So absolutely. This sounds like a very complicated, difficult system to build. So and sounds like you guys spent a lot of time like debating ideas and figuring out like the gaps in different directions. So what were some examples of some directions you thought sounded good, but you ultimately abandoned because of like some non-obvious flaw, right? Yeah, sure. That's a really good question. Ryan probably has a better memory for this stuff. But one thing I remember distinctly was EVM chains are like relatively easy. One, two, two, one, it's largely the same, right? People don't adhere perfectly like the Ethereum yellow paper. So maybe node structure is a little bit different, proof structure slightly different, but like broadly, it's the same. It's very solvable. Once you start getting into non-EVM chains, a lot of complexity gets introduced. So on EVMs, what actually happens, I'll get a little bit more technical for just a moment, but basically break apart the state. And you move it over and then you do a Merkle inclusion block. So you take it, you're taking the root of this block and you're taking a transaction proof, combining them over there. I'm like walking the proof up to the root. And so that's totally fine within EVM systems because they all share the same proof structure. But now go to Solana and you're talking, you have to be able to validate like a Merkle Patricia tree in Rust in Solana. And you need to take like a slice of proof of history and validate it in Solidity on the EVM, right? And that's a very non-trivial problem. And then add in Polkadot and add in all the Tendermint stuff. And in all of these other chains that have their own proofing structures. And that becomes extremely complex. So one of my earliest ideas was basically trying to make a universal proofing mechanism where you translated proofs on the way out and everybody just needed to accept one proofing mechanism on the way in. And we quickly realized that just condensed to something like totally different. So that was one thing that, that definitely I spent a bunch of time thinking about and just fundamentally like we had to discard because, yeah. And so that is one thing, but there, there's tons of others. I think Ryan and I, one of my favorite things about working with him is that we can both be super opinionated about stuff, but like ground truth is always the goal. So we will argue for days, but if our point gets changed, like if somebody presents a compelling argument the other way, it's, we're just done with it. And so we have had to change architectures 
in the earliest iterations, tons, but it was always like, get to what the best architecture is, the most modular. Brian, I'd love to go back to the example that you gave earlier about SushiSwap. And I'd love to just better understand like what's happening behind the scenes, right? So a user is like on SushiSwap, which is using layer zero. They want to convert their Bitcoin to Ethereum. If you're doing it on a centralized exchange like Coinbase, they'll do the market making in the background for you. And obviously you take on the risk. How does that work here though? When I take my Bitcoin and I'm like one Bitcoin, I want some ETH. What's happening from the moment that I click connect my wallet and approve that initial outgoing transaction to when it comes back into my ETH wallet? Yep. Okay. So I'm going to need to split layer zero and Stargate now, but we'll first talk about an AMM, right? So on-chain DEXs came up, Vitalik kind of posted about, hey, AMMs could basically be the XY equals K. Very simple formula, two assets in a pool, and there's just like a curve that values the asset. So this was amazing because now you didn't need manual market makers anymore. So for our listeners, AMM is like the automated market maker, right? Automated market maker. So what writing to blockchains is very expensive. So on a centralized exchange, you ever look at the order book and things are just like flashing like this. There's moving around all the time because market makers are adding and, and pulling orders constantly. But to do that on chain became like very expensive. And so the structure of an AMM was made where you would put in pools and basically the demand curve of how much is to added to one and taken from the other, the percentage of the assets that are in each side of this pool, that determined the price. And this was like really cool structure in the beginning. So that's how it's done. Asset A to asset B is done through this AMM structure of XY equals K. But now you ran in this problem between chains. So layer zero solves a problem, which is coordination. But the simplest example I can give is if you're just on Ethereum and you're going between farms, yield farms, right? You unstake your $10,000 of USDC here. On Ethereum, it's great. You have farm B, just stake it over there or stake it over there. Totally fine. Unstake, stake, no problem. Now, when you're going between chains, let's say Ethereum and Solana, right? I unstake from this pool on Ethereum. And now I want to stake over here on Solana, but I don't have 10,000 USDC over here. My inventory is still over in Ethereum. So you run into this inventory problem, right? I can send the message over here, but I don't have the physical inventory to stake into that contract on the other chain. And so layer zero unlocked a lot, but we realized that without this liquidity transfer layer, it was another really hard problem for people to solve. DEXs, yield aggregators, anybody who's dealing in standing inventory. So that's when we made Stargate, which is effectively just a bridge with some very unique properties and how it functions. It was the fastest growing DeFi application of, of all time. It accrued 4.4 billion in TVL within the first two weeks of launching. And basically you can think about it as just like liquid inventory abstraction. So now when you have a yield aggregator that wants to unstake here and stake there, they, in the background, what happens is unstake, add to Stargate on chain A, withdraw from Stargate on chain B and stake on chain B. Now. What the consumer sees, they sign one transaction. They only pay gas on the chain they're on. Whole flow gets actually magically. They're just in the farm on chain B farming away. So now you can imagine a wallet experience that lives above that, where you look at, again, 10 chains, six farms, and you can jump between them and you have no idea what the underlying chain is, what the underlying gas asset is, nothing, right? You just say, I want to go from A to B, done. And so the same thing is happening with the DEXs, right? What's actually happening is, if you already are at this intermediate asset, let's say USDC, you move it across and then you swap. If you're not, you swap into it, move it, and then you swap. And so this is act actually what's happening in the background of, of Sushi or any of these other DEX integrations. But to the end user, they just say, hey, I want to go from asset A to asset B. Click. Whole thing happens. You now have asset B on chain Y over there. 
So one part of it is like the coordination, right? Like the state management, which is what like, I think layer zero does. And then the other is like the liquidity management. How do you ensure like trustlessness in this? It sounds, it's very clear how this would work in a centralized way, right? It's just a centralized ledger. How do you do it in a decentralized way? So I'll work backwards. So I'll start at the application layer and then we'll go down to the technology layer. So Stargate is the application layer, right? Series of contracts can't be upgraded, can't be chained. The code is the code, just like a Uniswap pool, right? And so really what Stargate is, Stargate is we implemented, invented this thing called the Delta algorithm, which just manages credits and how liquidity is allocated to all of these other chains it's tied to. But really it's just pools of assets. So you can imagine I'm a chain, you're a chain. I've got a thousand in my pool, you've got a thousand in your pool, and I can just add a hundred here, take over there. Now we're 1100, 900, right? And there's curve style pricing at the bounds, all these things to force balance and to make sure that liquidity stays available to all the chains and do all of these things that sort of make the system nice to use. But at the end of the day, it's just contracts and layer zero is the layer that tells hey, I added 100 here. I need to go tell this side, give me 100 over there or any of these interactions that happen. The layers there is the coordination layer, but the contract layer of Stargate is just these immutable contracts that sit there and just accept money and release money, right? That's all that they do. Bunch of other nuance there, but we can effectively say that's really what it is providing. And so then you go a layer down to layer zero. Okay, how does layer zero messaging work? And so we get back to those core tenants of needing to allow for a system that one, we don't need to exist. It's not a service. You should not be opting in. It's not a service that we provide. It's a protocol. And that we should be able to do no harm, right? Like those are the two core tenants. And so the way that we solve this, one issue that I've had for a long time with a lot of other messages, you have all this sort of fancy hand-waving that happens on top, but their contracts are fully upgradable. So at the end of the day, whatever is happening here, if they can just change the security properties at any point in time. Like it's only as secure as that, right? So that is kind of the big concern, upgradable contracts. So layer zero has endpoints, completely non-upgradable, right? Completely immutable, cannot be changed. But you have this validation library. So we just published a new validation library on Tuesday called ULNV2. And validation libraries, you can imagine right now it's this Merkle Patricia tree process that I worked on that I spoke about. But there's tons of other things you can do. A great example is effectively at any validation layer, you have this curve of cost versus security, right? More cost, more security. And there's very different need for Aave processing $500 million liquidations and Krabata dealing in like 10 cent crab NFTs, right? Like they both price security very differently. It doesn't make any sense for them to opt into the same thing. So a new there's a world where you're going to need to have multiple parameterizations of security. There's a world where, hey, your governance protocol casting votes. You don't actually care if votes are streamed ad hoc or if they're aggregated and just sent in one transaction at the very end before the vote closes. In both cases, the outcome is exactly the same. And you can even reduce this further where like now you have like a snark attestation of what the votes were. And now you can do batch validation with Zcash. There's all these cool things you can do. But basically our bet was, listen, no validation layer that exists today will be the de facto five to 10 years from now. There's just way too much, even now things are changing rapidly, way more research to be done. And so we weren't willing to say, most of the people building are saying, here's a validation layer, we're gonna make this scale forever. And we just didn't believe that's going to be the case. And we thought there would be a need for nuanced changes between these. And so the way it works is there's an immutable layer zero endpoint and there's a bunch of libraries. We can publish, I'll say unlimited, it's like 65,000. We can publish basically unlimited libraries and each one 
does a different thing, or maybe the next ULNV3 might be the same as number two, but 20% more gas efficient, or there might be improvements over time. Then maybe you have a ZK library, then maybe you have a batch validation library, all these other things, right? And now you allow applications to opt into one they want. And the important part is that we can never change a library. So you can be on the default and you can get auto upgraded. So like when Ethereum switches from Merkle trees to Verkle trees, like multi trees won't be being generated anymore. And like all of that will break. So you're going to need to switch. If you don't have to deal with switching it, you're a smaller application, just be on default and you're going to get auto moved to the newest library. But if you're Uniswap, you're Aave, you're huge applications and you say, listen, ULNV2 has been battle tested for a year now. It's had billions of dollars on it. It's done billions in transactional volume. We don't want to test the newest piece of code, even though it's gone through audits and everything. We want to stay on the old one. There is nothing that we can do to move you. We can never change the state of that library. That will exist forever. And I think that is the most important thing. So it allows us the flexibility of advancing the validation layer, but without forcing any application to ever bear that if they don't want to. That's really cool. So you have this immutable like compute layer, which is decentralized and trustless. And then you have these validation contracts with different validation layers, which are all open source, public, can't be changed once published. And so that's like auditable and trustless in that sense. But so the challenge becomes like, how does the user know which validation layer is running? Because I think that the integrity of the system is only as good as like the validation layer that's running in the app, right? Then that's big, kind of like education problem. So you have to trust the DAP in a sense. So the protocol in the system is trustless, but you still have to trust like the DAP at the end of the day, the user is all, it doesn't matter if you're using Uniswap or using some other DAP and fully, it doesn't matter what you're using. At the end of the day, you're opting into their code. When you swap in Uniswap, you're bearing the risk of their code. And when you're done, ideally, you never think about it again. And now you no longer inherit that those trust assumptions, mm-hmm. right? And so this is the same thing. You can have an application of builds, points to a library and totally burns the ability to ever update that again, right? And makes their application fully immutable in the case of this is what we're pointing to. If we ever need to change in the future, we're going to have to redeploy and migrate. Or you have the ability to, you, maybe your application has more flexibility in it, so on and so forth. And from that side of things, you're really, it, you're always inheriting the trust of the application, yeah. or like the quality yeah, yeah, of the code. Yeah. That's really cool. So that's awesome. That just so incredible to like learn how some of this stuff works. Switching gears a little bit, we just want to ask a little bit about like how you found your first few customers. So you came up with what layer zero needed to look like, what the solution was. How did you figure out some of the early adopters, early customers, and then the early apps to validate the system and build confidence that would work and be something that could be like a foundational layer that gained an option? Yeah, I think we did it in a way that like Steve Blank would disapprove of. And that was just built the thing with the assumption that we were building the right thing, really. We didn't have early customers lined up and we hadn't gone through this process. Like we had talked to some people who were largely fully installed. We knew we would use what we we're building. We knew there's a demand or a need for it overall in the space. But when we came out of stealth, we hadn't spoken to anybody. We actually launched with a demo showing the exact implementation of what SushiSwap and other DEXs eventually integrated. We launched with a demo showing like, hey, this is possible now. And that really sparked the mind of a lot of people. But in terms of how we dealt with it early, like we just built and we built the thing that we would use or we would want to use and had really high conviction in that. So yeah, again, probably not like the most repeatable process in general, but that was what we did. That's amazing. And then you mentioned like in the first week, there were like three or $4 billion locked up. Like that's an incredible reception 
for the first time a product being launched. How did that work? Was that word of mouth? Who was like, what kind of app applications were fueling that? Yep. So we launched and this was like, everybody always asks like, oh, what do you do for marketing? Or people regard us as you're amazing. I'm like, God, like we don't have a single go to market person in our entire org where we're starting to add those, but like literally not one. This was like Ryan and I writing very technical papers and then making like a meme filled medium and me making like a Twitter thread discussing it. And so like when we announced it came out of stealth, we had in one single tweet, we had 45,000 followers on Twitter and 15,000 plus in Telegram and Discord. So it was very clear, like what we were talking about resonated really deeply with people because we did, I just put the tweet out in the world and published media, like nothing, no paid promotion, not a single dollar, like not asking people nothing. And then when we launched again, we went up to a hundred thousand on Twitter and a little bit more on Telegram and Discord. And all of that was like, there was this very high level of anticipation around what we were doing. We were just very early in building it. And we tried to be like, once we came out of stealth, we said this is what we're going to build. And then the next thing we did was like this being live in production. And we launched, so Stargate, the bridge I was describing, we launched with layer zero because we knew if we don't have the liquidity transfer layer solved, we just launched the protocol. Great, amazing primitive, but it will be six plus months until anybody else builds on top of us. So for us, we said, listen, we actually, we were ready to launch probably in like November and we didn't launch till April. So five-ish full months just to make sure Stargate was up and fully ready because we knew what's the point of launching here and letting everybody catch up. These people need to reinvent the own thing, their own things. Whereas like, if we give them Stargate, the most basic version of the sushi swap integration was like 30 lines of code. Literally wrap a contract here, wrap a contract here, like compose Stargate, right? And so now you basically have this easy mode for everybody who wants to take advantage of this sort of construct where haste like you can just wrap existing contracts and do this and even if you don't own it so even if you wanted to be like an aggregator sits outside and said hey i'm gonna walk i'm gonna wrap like one inch on this chain and uniswap on this chain or like trader joe to pancake swap or whatever anybody can do that outside so now you have third-party developers who can like make applications making this entire experience of DeFi like much better and so we launched layer zero and stargate together and Stargate was the first early app, right? So there was a flagship app that was meant to say, here's how you can build something. Here's what this unlocks. And so all of that early attention was largely like all that liquidity was in Stargate. And now four and a half months later, five months, however long it's been, now we have almost 8,000 contracts on testnet, thousand plus on mainnet. And so developer adoption since then has just been like incredible. That's amazing. And the way Stargate bootstrapped liquidity was like the same thing someone would do with the 20 steps to like buy... So Stargate bootstrapping liquidity is just, you can add, let's say it's largely stable. So let's say you add USDC on the Ethereum chain or add USDC on the Polygon chain, and that's it. People would deposit the USDC there. And now for the people moving back and forth, they can now move that liquidity around, right? So add to Ethereum, take from Polygon, add to Polygon, take from Avalanche and so on and so forth, right? So all of that was just people independently depositing. Got it. But were there cases where you had to actually transfer the assets to have enough liquidity and never? All of that's done through the Delta algorithm is like the balance rates works at a very high level is you have two chains that are like this and there's like just six bit fee normally. But as they start to go like this, maybe there's a very, maybe your farm of USDC pays like 4% and there's an amazing farm over there that pays 80%, right? So everybody wants to go in that direction. Now, as those start to get imbalanced, you start to incur a higher fee to go this way and 100% of the excess fee sits in a pool and anybody who goes back this way can take that fee, right? So now your market makers, your Alameda, whoever it is, who says, hey, 
I'm willing to trade USDC here for USDC there for an extra five bips or eight bips or whatever it is. Boom, they balance it out. Pools are back. And the entire construct has the self-balancing mechanism such that we never need to do anything. Yeah. That should be how it is. And you could just build on top of all of that existing yeah. market. Anybody yeah. building doesn't need to think about it ever. Users don't need to think about it ever. In a weird way, it's very similar to how operating systems bootstrap like early developer interests where they built the first few apps themselves to showcase the functionality and the power. And also it helps build the platform better because it's a feedback loop between Microsoft Office and Windows, for example, that makes both better and then also opens up the ecosystem. It reminds me a lot of that, which is cool. Yeah. And that's a good transition to business model. You mentioned there's, in some cases, there might be a transaction fee. How do you guys think about business model? Where'd you land on that? Yeah. One thing that's nice, as you had mentioned, like we have... 30 plus years of runway, right? It's like a very unique position to be in. And so right now the focus is like just build, right? You want to build the best possible thing and you want to capture as much of the market as humanly possible. Broad, higher level monetization is if you think of there being a fee cent per message, right? Very small nominal fee. Everything will clearly be like in volume of messaging. You're not, because you can't, I can't take six, Stargate takes bips, right? Stargate is six bips, right? So you transfer $1,000, six bips go to the LPs or the protocol. I can't take six bips of an NFT. I can't take six bips of a generic message, right? So there's nothing around that. So it's purely a very small fee on every message sent. And so when you ask, how do the largest institutional investors of the world think about the opportunity spaces? Hey, before you couldn't monetize like TCP IP, you couldn't monetize like the internet layer, right? And so you actually had your internet layer, the technology, and then you had the like, application layer, which is like, Apple, Facebook, and everybody out here. And they accrued trillions. And then you had like ISPs who like disintermediated all, or actually aggregated all this and just like gate kept everything, right? So the ISPs accrued a huge amount of value. Look at the ISP value for every major provider in the US, right? And so now you disintermediate the ISPs completely. They no longer exist. And in order to have a secure technology layer, you must monetize it because you must have a way basically to secure that from a crypto economic sense. And so when they think about that is this layer is gone. If you could go back and price the internet, price TCP IP, like how much value does that layer accrue? And that is near unlimited effectively, right? And so really it's about everything is this asymmetric bet on the space in general, all of crypto to be able to claim more in gaming, in traditional finance, and all of this, right? And all of those conversations are happening now. That's happening very much in real time. But from a pure perspective of what does this look like long-term, that's what it looks like. And how does the value capture happen? Let's say when you can monetize like the TCP layer in this new, brave new world, right? Well, how does the value capture happen? Layer zero does not have any token for what it's worth. So as of right now, there there is no token for layer zero. So right now there is no information on what that might look like long-term, anything else around that, right? So Stargate has its own model that sits above and Stargate is that six bips. Relayers and oracles, people who sit within and pass this state back and forth, they can have their own system, right? Chainlink has one model, switchboard, flux band, all the oracles have their own different way they price passing data. And the same thing on relayers, you need to do gas abstraction and like deal with vol and destination chain. But in terms of like at the protocol level, there's just like nothing out about it yet. Okay. But it's some flavor of a gas transactional kind of like fee is like the pattern that we see, right? Yeah, For I think a clear path you could see is to take what is like a consistent pricing mechanism between it's different and you're going to Ethereum and the average gas cost is X and you're going on Solana and the average gas cost is like near nothing. I think the simplest model would be something like take a very small percent of the aggregate gas spent on the chain. So maybe 
1% or 3%, whatever that is of gas spent. And so there's no separate pricing. Users have the exact same experience. They do gas looks slightly more expensive, like 1.01 or 1.03 of what their normal gas expense is when they're doing a cross-chain transaction, something like that. But I think there's a couple different ways you could approach it. And Brian, how does that work with the immutability concept? Because the existing code is like running on those endpoints. Does this happen in future upgrades? And maybe there's like additional features that are launched alongside it. Like, how do you tactically roll this out in a world where it's like a decentralized protocol? Yeah, 100%. So the endpoints themselves, right? Endpoints really deal with two things. They deal with nonce management and they deal with validation. So like messaging, right? And validating incoming message. They do that through these validation libraries. Outside of that sit this construct of who passes that data, sort of who is able to relay that, what those things look like, and that's where this would sit. And so there's ability to not touch any of that stuff. So again, relayers and oracles themselves can monetize however they want. It's got to be commoditized, right? So largely, this is going to be driven down to whatever the minimum cost of these games can be. It'll be a very commoditized market, just like anything else. The actual fee accrual part in the protocol is built into the protocol already. It's just not activated. So what that looks like has the ability to basically be similar to Uniswap. Uniswap has the ability to turn on a fee switch. It has not turned on a fee switch, but it does have the ability to do without changing any of the underlying security assumptions, without changing anything else. That makes a lot of sense. So it's clear this is like a massive opportunity. There's probably network effects at play here. So how did you guys think about fundraising? And why did you decide to raise $100 million like within a year after getting started? Yeah, so we didn't expect to. I think we have six preamps in 10 days or something. So it was like a bit of a whirlwind at the start of that round. But originally, if you look at our fundraising history, it was very clear that we started with like a very DeFi. So look at our early round and it was co-led by Binance and Multicoin. And then like Delphi and Sino and Defiance and all of Robot Ventures, all of these others that are really like our goal was, listen, DeFi is what we're tackling. Like we want to have the largest or second largest stakeholder of every single protocol. We want to be in the room with these people as they're thinking through these solutions. Like how do we basically be with the people who are closest into how they're framing these decisions long term, right? Like how do they actually think about this? How is this stuff getting built? So all of our early investments really were along that lens. And then after that, as we announced, as we came to self, as we did these things, it became very clear that what we were building was bigger than what we had originally intended, right? And then what we were originally thinking about. And so then it really became a lot more of how, like, we've done a lot of things that are technically, I would say, very difficult in the past, but we've not built something at this scale in terms of like running a company. So then it was a lot of like, how do we get involved? The people who are closest to building the best companies in the world, the largest orgs, right? This is when you're talking to your Sequoias, your Andreessen's. And so a lot of this was like, how do we get those people involved? And then once we had our leads, so the leads of that round were A16Z, Sequoia, and FTX. Once we had our leads settled, then who else do we want to get involved? And that was, we were the first ever token check out of PayPal Ventures. We were Uniswap's first ever check. And then it became like, who do we want to be working very closely with on an ongoing basis? And so for us, like we tried all fundraising, all parties involved, we try to be like reasonably strategic about and know exactly what we're asking for or exactly like who we wanted to align ourselves with. So this is like a very complicated business in many ways. And like, it's probably not easy to explain, but you've obviously done it like super successfully. Looking back, what would you say are like, what are two like lessons or like approaches to fundraising that you think might've served you well? I think my biggest takeaways for anybody else is really, I think, 
One is, I really think one of the best things we did was, again, that super adversarial mindset. Like by the time it came to investor conversations, to DD, to all of this, like every question that was being asked, every hole that anybody was trying to poke, I'd already argued with Ryan a hundred times before, right? Like we had already stripped this apart and tried to break so many times that it seemed almost effortless to answer any of the technical questions. And so I think that made us, compared to most other great, I've been writing checks for a very long time myself, for a long time. And I think like, it's very rare to come up to somebody who just seems like they have thought, like really thought through all of the trade-offs that are being made, really thought through like how adversarial selection works or how like you're structuring certain things for the future. And so I think that made a huge difference of just like in all of these conversations, I think the delta on the technical rigor of just like debating viability was probably very large. And then the other thing was just like, I think pure passion matters a lot. Like, I think we were just extremely passionate about what we were building. And I think that was super clear to everybody who spoke to us early on. It was like, we're not like, oh, I think we should build this thing. Like, maybe we can raise some money and do it. It wasn't like, we didn't care if we raised money. We actually never were actively raising around. We never had a pitch deck. We still have never had a pitch deck. We were just building this thing because we felt like we had to build it, right? We we're just building. And then we were showing it to people because we were excited about what we were building. And then that would come with people who are saying like, we are super excited. Like, how can we get involved? Here's how we can add value, et cetera. So I think a lot of that was like, we were not going to people with a deck saying, hey, we're fundraising this. It's, hey, we're building this thing. And people wanted to align themselves with us. They wanted to get on board with what we were doing. And I think that stance also just makes a huge difference. They could tell, and we were certainly building this with or without them. And I think that, changes your positioning and how some of these conversations play out drastically. Yeah. I mean, you guys were so confident in the problem, right? You'd faced it like day in, day out. You knew the problem, you knew the solution. And it sounds like, boy, you had some crazy traction too, but like Billy had deposited within a few weeks is that's just like wild, right? It was, it was completely unexpected. I'll tell you the two weeks post-launch was very, very, very little sleep. We had no idea which was maybe a couple hundred million, who knows what it's going to be, but certainly not billions and certainly not so quickly. And it was great because it let us, if you followed what we've done, I think we pushed like a bunch of major security updates after that. Like we invented pre-crime. We did all of these other things just around that because all this money was in it. People were lobbing attacks and like nothing was successful, but my God, did it terrify us and force us to reinforce things even more. So it was super interesting. But again, just like the traction on launch, it was very clear what we were doing was like needed. It resonated deeply with people. That's amazing. Brian, we've got a couple of closeout questions we like to ask every guest. The first is, what's the most challenging or difficult feedback you've received? And how did you process it and incorporate it moving forward? Okay, the most challenging feedback was in our round. So in our earliest round, all of our early conversation that round came with sort of groups wanting to buy out the entire round. And we had a group, I can't name it, like a very strategic group who would have been unbelievable for a lot of reasons who wanted to take the entire round, potentially wanted to acquire the company early, all of these different things, right? And so this went all the way to us having a term sheet in hand and then be totally ghosted for two weeks and then be told like, this is not happening. And, and even like some competitive stuff was said. So that process of just like very long period of basically counting on this again, having the term sheet physically in hand and gone through everything to being like strongly aligned to potentially strongly adversarial was tough for sure. That was an interesting time. 
Totally. That sounds really challenging and stressful, I would imagine, with everything else going on. The question we're trying to get is also like around feedback. Was there a situation which like you personally received feedback where it was like maybe when your co-founders or one of the investors, there was something you were doing, you were getting like blunt and maybe like feedback that hit against some something internally. And then how did you like process that? I don't think I've had anything like that this journey. And so part of that comes from Ryan and Caleb and I have built together for 16 years. So it's like a marriage and we've already had been through all the hard stuff that you could go through and like fighting and figuring out how to work together and do all of this and definitely not from the investor side. So yeah, I don't think I have a great answer for that right now or nothing springs to mind. Makes me think you guys have, you regularly put yourself in situations where you feel like make yourself uncomfortable through debate through pushing yourself. And so maybe that's something that has been addressed through small exchanges. Many, many years of iterated feedback between like figuring out how to work together. That's really special. Next questions are on superpowers. Everyone has a set of things that feels like play to them, but looks like work to others. And we found that people tend to leverage those superpowers day to day. What are some of the superpowers that you've identified in yourself that you like to lean on? Yeah, I think by far the things that I do really well are being able to Like I used to be very technical. I haven't written a line of code in production in a very long time. And yet I'm still like very active with architecture. I'm very active in like sitting in with engineers and taking constructs and like I can take complex concepts and make them digestible or at least like understandable at a high level, whether it be to investors, whether it be to people within our own org, all of that. So one, like breaking complex systems down into like digestible chunks for the certain individual. And then the other thing is just like talking about what we're doing in terms of like, again, never had a pitch deck, never had anything, right? It's been largely us like talking about what we're doing. I think evangelizing is something that I just love to do. There are things that like you're good at and take no effort. And then there are things you're good at that are really draining. And then there's this everything else, right? And so one thing we realized super early on is just, I have no more direct reports. I had a bunch early on, like everybody basically in the company who wasn't strictly technical. And Ryan, my co-founder, was just like, listen, it's very clear the leverage of you doing this versus the leverage of you doing everything else, strategy, product, and everything else that you do is like one, one thousandth, right? So we're going to take away all of your direct reports and you're just going to do those things. And so I think we've really tried to like all of us individually maximize the things that we're good at. But I think those are the two things that have really helped both, both through, again, making what we're doing resonate with people. So our broad positioning and how we present it to other people and explain it to other people. And then also through the rounds and through everything else. I think you have to be good at breaking down those concepts and explaining how it works and why it matters. That's awesome. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And it's really cool that you are like so thoughtful about how you invest your time. One last question, which is, what are some DAP use cases that you're like super excited about? I think the thing I've been, I've written about a bunch of these. So one was like the sushi swap example, but there's a couple of things I wrote about a year and a half ago when we first started working on this. And the other is like native lended borrow. I think wrapped assets are largely like an abomination. Some Sometimes they're necessary. Right? You're not going to, you have no contract that can like mint you Bitcoin on the other side. So great. Like sometimes you need it, but for all assets that have canonical versions, like when you have a wrapped asset, you are basically, again, you use Uniswap, you inherit Uniswap risk for the swap and then you never think about it again. When you have a wrapped asset, you carry on some synthetic asset that carries risk in perpetuity. Destination contracts hacked, that's no longer backed by anything. Source contracts hacked, that's no longer backed by anything. Validation layer fails, everything's gone. And so like 
Now the asset itself carries risk, and that's like a very bad position for the consumers to be in. As we billions of bridge hacks later, like this is becoming more and more transparent to everyone. So something that I thought early on, do we really need to have wrapped Saul on Phantom, right? Like we just don't. There's no reason. Like people want to leverage their spending power without losing exposure to the underlying, right? And so I think a world where lending and borrowing, so your Abe-esque protocols and money markets, basically have it, right? Like you can imagine a very simple system where on Ethereum, we have two pools, ETH and USDC. And on Avalanche, we have AVAX and USDC. And on Solana, we have Sol and USDC. You can just collateralize on one chain and take a debt position on another chain against it. I borrow native Sol directly. I borrow native USDC directly on that chain, do whatever I want, repay, message comes back, collateral is unlocked again, right? You have the ability to do all of this without ever touching wrapped assets, without ever introducing any of that like carrying for the user, right? So in Stargate, that was really important. Stargate is only native assets, no wrapped. And the important part was that the LPs bear risk, right? If the protocol is broken, if something happens, the LPs bear the risk, but the user, the end user who swaps, at the end of that swap, they just have native asset. They never think about it again. That doesn't carry forward. And I think that is hugely important. So that, along with some of the gaming and NFT stuff we've been seeing is by far like the things I'm most excited about right now. Then I have another answer that's more like, structural. And I think I'm like the only person in the world excited about it. But I'll say that as well. The only other thing that I have thought a lot about, and I've never heard anybody else talk about, and again, I don't know that anybody else cares yet, but I think the way we build things now monolithically is just like the way we built applications in the early internet. You deploy a contract on a chain or like you deploy code in a computer and it sit on a computer and you host it at your house or if you're lucky in a data center and like it just ran there. But now everything is microservices, right? So everything that we do is structured around pieces that are hyper-optimized for certain things. And so you have the ability now, once you have communication layer, to start to build applications that are like orders of magnitude more complex than what we see now. So you can imagine a world where like you will never store everything you want on Ethereum, but like you get all of your storage on Arweave take it, bundle it up, do this really complex computation on Solana and roll the result back to Ethereum or to other chains, right? I think the ability to effectively leverage these orthogonal trade-offs of layer ones as almost microservices for pieces of computer of action that you're doing there is super interesting in terms of like long-term how applications might start to grow and develop. But again, I've not heard anybody really exploring it yet. So maybe sometime soon. Yeah, you can almost imagine every chain being amazing at a couple of discrete things and then being able to weave it all together. It's a compelling vision. Yeah. Brian, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you for coming on and tell your story. It's clear you guys are solving a really ambitious problem and going after an ambitious vision. So we're rooting for you all and we'd love to have you on again sometime. Amazing. Thank you guys so much for having me.